This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. Okay. I see a lot of people leaving. I hope they're just going to the restroom. You know, years and years ago, not a meeting went by without somebody talking about HIV, and now you rarely hear about it, which I think is really unfortunate. So I'm gonna bring you up to speed, probably be a little less than an hour, so y'all can get ready to get on the boat because I'm gonna be there too. No conflict of interest. Just remember that our specialty used to be called dermatology and syphilology, so STDs are still important. And this is me on CNN. Okay, really it isn't, it's Photoshopped. But talking about STDs, and STD strands in the US are really abysmal as we don't have 2016 statistics until October of the following year. But as of 2015, everything is on the rise. We're kind of back to where we were 20 years ago. Syphilis in particular increased by almost 20%. 74% of states had an increase in syphilis. And our rate per 100,000 is higher than it was in 1995. Gonorrhea, the same sort of thing. So, you know, HIV is still a problem. This is the virus, a deceptively simple virus with just a few major components, and yet it can wreak so much havoc on patients. So here's the fine print, which I'll summarize really rapidly. HIV primarily affects the CD4, the T helper lymphocytes, but it can also infect and affect B cells, monocytes and macrophages, the presenting antigen-presenting cells. And so it has a multifactorial effect upon the immune system, and that's why we get opportunistic infections and we lose our immunologic response to tumors, which is why some people also get tumors. Transmission. By show of hands, those of you in the room, how many of you have at least one patient in your practice you know is HIV positive? Virtually everybody. So these questions will come up, if not from the patient, from their family, or their significant others. So how is it transmitted? In what body fluids? Blood, we all know that. Vaginal secretions, we know that. Semen, we all know that. Also breast milk, if someone's HIV positive, pregnant, and breastfeeding. Where is it not transmitted? Tears, sweat, and saliva. I put a couple asterisks by saliva because if saliva is contaminated by blood, like someone has bad gingivitis, then it could theoretically be transmitted in saliva, but uncontaminated saliva does not support HIV virus. How is it transmitted? Well, injection of blood or blood components, that could be blood on a needle, so intravenous drug abusers, sexual contact, and perinatally transmitted from an infected mother to the child. Who are the high-risk groups? Well, you know this, certainly. Gay or bisexual men, IV drug users, regardless of gender, those who receive transfusion or blood products, but quite some time ago, because now those are screened for HIV, heterosexual contacts of those who are HIV positive, and then, of course, the newborn babies of mothers who are HIV positive. 
This is still a problem. So living with HIV infection now, 37 million people globally, about 1.2 million of them in the United States. Incidents, new cases, about 2 million a year worldwide. It's fairly stable the last half dozen years in the United States at about 50,000 new cases per year. We've lost a whole lot of people to HIV, 36 million worldwide, 650,000 plus in the United States. And the last bullet point is the saddest of them all. They're all sad, but this is really sad. Once diagnosed, so now someone is diagnosed with HIV. They know they have HIV. Their providers know they have HIV. Only about 40% worldwide and in the US engage in ongoing, continuous, and appropriate care, which is really sad. There are a lot of people who are HIV positive who just don't get proper care. How do we compare to the rest of the world? So this is our population. About one half of 1% are HIV infected. So we're on a par with Malaysia, Indonesia, and Vietnam, which I think says something. We should be much better. We should have a lower percentage of our population. We should have better education, better access to care. But we're not. Look at New Zealand and Australia, UK. They're all doing much better than we are. Now, we're not quite as bad as, you know, let's say, South Africa or Thailand, but we should be doing better than we are. Keep this in mind. Every 9.5 minutes, someone is infected in the United States with HIV. So it's about 10 minutes. So by the time I'm done with my talk, there will be six new HIV patients in the US. By the time we're done with that little boat ride tonight, there'll be another 20 people infected with HIV. And every day, and every night, every 9.5 minutes. Bisexual and gay men are, of course, at highest risk. But let's look at some other factors. Sexual orientation, certainly, this is men who have sex with men. Regardless, that's what MSM is, regardless of their ethnicity. They're the highest risk group. But look at minorities. These are African Americans, blacks. And if you look at the proportion of the population compared to the percentage of new HIV patients who were just diagnosed, it disproportionately affects the black community, which I suspect is a function of education and access to appropriate knowledge and care. If you add on Hispanics as well, who are about 18% of the population, yet they're 24% of the new HIV cases. So it's predominant, overwhelmingly predominant, in skin of color, in minority communities. But remember, it started primarily in white gay men. What's happened since then, the incidence has gone down and down and down over the last decade or so. So that's not the highest demographic group. Anybody can be HIV infected if they're subject to the proper conditions. But from a demographic standpoint, this has changed rather dramatically. How about age? So this is the age group, 20 to 40, primarily. This is in the US. 
This would be skewed even younger if we were talking about other countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. But it's primarily 20 to 40-year-olds. And what do generally most 20 to 40, certainly 20 to 30-year-olds think that they're invincible? And it can't happen to me. And I'm not going to get infected because I'm young and I'm healthy. It's a self-delusional state. And that's true not only of HIV, but of cancer and other things, and young people who have the appropriate symptoms or pursue the appropriate acts, unprotected sexual intercourse, certainly can be affected, young people. But also look even at the bottom. About 5% of the new HIV AIDS patients are over 60. So age is not a disqualification. This is what's most common but you're not protected just because you've gotten old. Er. Where is HIV in terms of location? As of last year, you can see the darker colored blue states largely centered along the lower Atlantic seaboard in the deep south. Also, California, here we are. And some of the bigger states in the northern climes like Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York. And how about life these are the three largest states in terms of numbers, Louisiana, Georgia, and Florida. The largest number is in Washington, D.C., which might explain the way they act up there. I don't know. Lifetime risk for HIV. Look at that solid dark blue along the deep south and the lower Atlantic seaboard and New York. So this is where we see it primarily. You don't see it if you're practicing in Montana your chances are not zero, but they're pretty low. If you're practicing in the Deep South or the Lower Atlantic Seaboard, your chances are pretty darn high. And then if you're in DC, you've hit the jackpot. One in seven now living with HIV are unaware of their diagnosis. So some people are aware and don't get care or don't pursue ongoing care, and there are a whole number of them that never, ever know until some point they get really sick. And it's interesting because the people who don't know are actually the ones responsible for many of the new infections. Obviously, they don't know. They take no precautions. So both the CDC in the United States and the World Health Organization have really been supporting self-testing because people don't like to go to a health clinic and say, gee, I'd like an HIV test or they may not ask their primary care healthcare providers. They may not ask us, even though they might be seeing, something, seeing us for something that could conceivably be related to HIV infection. So self-testing, and in the US there are basically two ways to do self-testing. They're both under $50. One is a needle stick, finger stick blood, which is sent in a kit out to analysis, and then you can call for an anonymous result, it's all by code, later. Or there's an oral swab, which you do at home. It's a self-contained diagnostic kit, and you have an answer in 20 minutes. Now there are some false negatives there, about 8%. So a negative is pretty darn good, but it's not totally correct. There are very, very few false positives or false negatives in the finger stick text but it does cost a tiny bit more, and of course you have to wait for the result. But self-testing is so important because that is the first step 
towards obtaining therapy is knowing that you're positive. It's also the first step in avoiding transmitting it to anyone else because you know you're positive and hopefully the patient would take additional precautions. When do you start therapy? And this has dramatically changed, dramatically, since even a few years ago. So this was the START trial, the number of thousands of HIV-positive patients from multiple countries. They began therapy at different times. It used to be there was a standardized way that therapy was administered. You had to get to a certain CD4 count or a certain viral load in the blood. And it turns out that if you start therapy early, patients do better. They have fewer AIDS-related illnesses, and it reduces transmission. So it's not only good for the patient, it's good for society as a whole. And so based upon this and several additional studies, we now have these recommendations from the World Health Organization, which are paralleled by our own CDC. It's just, I think, more elegantly stated in the World Health Organization publication. So they say that CR, combination antiretroviral therapy, that's basically replaced highly active antiretroviral therapy. So it's CR instead of heart, should be initiated among all adults with HIV, regardless of their clinical stage, we'll talk about staging in a second, or what their CD4 count is. It should be administered to pregnant and breastfeeding women. They admit it that they're diagnosed as being HIV positive, and it should be administered the minute that the diagnosis of HIV positivity is established in infants, in toddlers, children, adolescents. So the bottom line recommendation is we don't wait for people to get sick. We don't wait for a, any specific CD4 count we don't wait for any specific HIV viral load. As soon as the diagnosis of HIV positivity is established, they should start to receive therapy immediately. And that really has changed over the last few years. I mentioned this before. This is just another graphic illustration of that. There are about 15% who don't know. 85% are diagnosed, but look at what happens. Only about 40% are engaged in care, and only about 31% are virally suppressed, largely because of lack of adherence to therapy. So this is US statistics. This isn't Africa or Asia. And so we really should be doing better in this regard, too. This is kind of a sad study, but it is important to understand that even if someone is receiving appropriate antiretroviral therapy, the virus is still multiplying. It's still affecting newly formed CD4 cells. The CD4 count might go up. The patient is clearly at reduced risk for infections or tumors, but it's very difficult to completely eradicate this virus. This is a management disease. It's a disease that hopefully we obtain control over and we keep control over. It's like turning cancer into a chronic disease. We administer drugs until or if they fail, and then we administer a different set of drugs and we try and keep the patient under control. But absolutely eradicating the virus is very difficult, if not impossible. It's not like strep pharyngitis and you give them some penicillin. The strep can't be cultured and their pharyngitis goes away. 
This is a much different proposition. Now, this is sort of interesting, and this is a new take on vitamin D. Vitamin D is not a panacea. You're not giving vitamin D to everyone to make every disease better. But it really does turn out that if people are vitamin D insufficient, not necessarily deficient, but somewhere in the 20 to 30 nanograms per ml state, if they're there, instead of being higher, which would be considered normal, they don't respond as well. And people with normal vitamin D levels recover their CD4 counts quicker, and they have a higher absolute number when they're stabilized. So it's important in anyone who's diagnosed with HIV infection to check their vitamin D level. And if it's low, they should be repleted, even as their therapy is being initiated. OK, one more concept which has really taken root in the last few years, and that's pre-exposure prophylaxis. You have people who are at risk because of their sexual habits or because they're shooting up drugs, but they don't yet have HIV infection. They are negative, but they're in high-risk categories, the categories I talked about earlier. So this was a summary from the World Health Organization. And if you look at the bottom line there, that's the most important. Oral pre-exposure prophylaxis, that's the PREP, should be offered as a prevention choice for people who are at substantial risk for HIV infection. And how is that done? That's usually done on a daily basis. It's a double combination drug taken on a daily basis every single day. It is important that you think about who would be benefit from this, those who are at high risk, men who have sex with men, heterosexual men and women who have an HIV-positive partner, injection drug users, those same high-risk groups. It is recommended, however, that if patients start on pre-exposure prophylaxis, that they basically sign a contract. This is a prototype contract. And the main part of that contract says, I'm going to give you pre-exposure prophylaxis, but it's not 100% effective. I'm still saying that you should use barrier protection and be aware of unsafe sex practices. It also says, don't hold me accountable if you still get HIV. It also says you should keep your appointments, and I'm not going to keep giving you medication unless you're seen on a regular basis, basically every three months. The reason why something like this is important is there are medical legal cases where someone was given pre-exposure prophylaxis, a prescription. They still developed HIV, and they went and sued their provider. They said, you didn't protect me like you said you were going to. But if you sign a contract that says, this is not 100% protective, I'm doing my best for you, then the patient has admitted by signature that they understand this is not a perfect way of going about preventing HIV. This is revolutionary. This fairly recent publication in New England Journal of Medicine really revolutionized. And it's this double therapy, tenofovir and emtricitabine. And what it is, is it's on demand. So a lot of people don't like to take medicine every single day, right? That's a common problem, whether it's high blood pressure, diabetes, 
or pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. So this was a very nifty study, 400 at-risk individuals split. Some got nothing. The others took three doses of the same two drugs or combination drug that is usually used on a daily basis. They took the first dose two to 24 hours before anticipated unprotected intercourse. Then the second dose at 24 hours and the third dose at 48 hours after unprotected intercourse. And those three doses, that's it, were sufficient to reduce HIV acquisition by almost 90%. So if someone doesn't want to take medicine every single day, three doses, once before and twice after, really reduce their risk of acquiring HIV infection. Now, we generally, in dermatology, don't administer these drugs, but if you have a patient who's HIV positive, I think it's really appropriate for you to ask about their sexual practices and habits, and if they're at risk for HIV demographically and by practice, you can tell them about pre-exposure prophylaxis, infectious disease, and some internist will take care of this in terms of administering the drug. And at any visits that they come to see you, you can ask, are you taking your pre-exposure prophylaxis? Are you following that regimen, whether it's daily or it's on demand? So this was only done in men. It probably would be appropriate for women, like a heterosexual woman whose partner male partner is HIV positive, but we don't have any data on women. So do we have anything coming up for women? And the answer is yes. This is a silicone elastomer. It fits on the cervix like a cervical cap, and it contains an antiretroviral drug, depivirine, that slowly is released. This has to be changed once a month. It was subject to a very large study in Africa and protected at the 50 to 75% rate. In other words, fewer people who use this compared to people of age controlled who didn't use it, 75% less developed HIV infection. The 50% was only in a couple parts of this study and it was highly suspect that the subject said they were doing it but they really weren't. If used properly, this is an incredible prevention, a nice, it's monthly, so it's relatively convenient. And here's what's coming. This study has already begun in the United States, as well as Canada, several of the large countries in South America, like Brazil, a few countries in Africa and Asia. And this is an injectable, it's a nanoparticle, intramuscular injection that's given every two months. So it's six injections over the course of a year. And a small test of concept study showed that this was virtually 100% protective. So this is coming. It's a long study. It's over four years in multiple countries. But I think ultimately, this will be the best of prophylaxis, probably better than oral drug, because this is a nanoparticle emulsion that stays there, slowly releases drug. And it's incredibly convenient, six injections a year. And if it turns out in a large-scale study to be as effective as the small proof-of-concept study, this is how we'll protect people who are at risk. So I want to finish by talking about a few clinical pearls. So let's look at this one, psoriasis. 
bread and butter, common everyday derm disease. But remember this, psoriasis that generally is severe and of rapid onset in an adult with no family history almost always has nail psoriasis. In that setting, think about psoriasis as being a manifestation of HIV infection and never ever give methotrexate to those people because they will develop even up to fatal complications. So in the setting of HIV, how do you treat this if you can't give an immunosuppressive? Acetratin and phototherapy are the mainstays of therapy, which we all know may not be sufficient in some patients. So there's the question of biologics, and although no biologic drug is currently approved for administration in an HIV-positive patient, there's plenty of precedent in the literature for the TNF-alpha blockers. Safe, they appear safe in HIV-positive individuals. And if acetratin and or phototherapy do not work, are not sufficient for psoriasis, then I, and I do it, I think administration of an anti-TNF is appropriate. My main point in this, though, is someone comes in with rapid onset, I didn't have this four weeks ago, really bad psoriasis with a negative family history, always think about HIV infection. And I've had several patients who presented in this fashion who to all the world had no demographic risk for HIV, but actually they did. They were covert drug users or covert bisexuals. So you have to think about this. There's a difference between HIV infection and AIDS. AIDS, your CD4 count has usually fallen already below 200, or there's an AIDS-defining illness. We see fewer and fewer of those AIDS-defining illnesses because we intervene earlier. But people do come in late sometimes, and they're presenting with some of the other things I'm gonna talk about in a second, and that certainly establishes the diagnosis. Remember, major caveat in treating taking care of, contributing to the care of HIV-positive individuals. Earlier treatment is better. Catching the disease earlier is better. And this is the natural history of the disease. So there's an acute illness, and then the CD4 count falls, and then it recovers. The virus sort of stays dormant for years, even up to a decade, and then as the virus, without treatment, and as the virus increases, CD4 count starts falling, and then opportunistic infections, tumors, and then ultimately death appear. What about the acute retroviral syndrome? It's often mistaken for the flu, or it's mistaken for some other viral illness, viral unspecified, or sometimes it's thought to be mononucleosis. Look at some of the symptoms that are common, fever, lymphadenopathy, pharyngitis. What does that say to you? To me, that says, think about mono, right? But that can be part and parcel of the symptom package that goes along with acute retroviral infection. The patient has just been infected. And this is what's important to us. About a third to as many, depending on which paper you read, to as many as almost three quarters of patients who have this acute retroviral illness may present with a rash, 
What does that rash look like? Well, I wish I could characterize it better and tell you, look for this and you'll know the patient has acute retroviral syndrome. Let me show you some pictures and you'll see. It's not terribly specific. But again, what I want to point out to you, it's like psoriasis. You're in the office. New patient comes in with rash and I don't feel good. How don't you feel good? I have a sore throat. I have a fever. Make sure they haven't taken ampicillin or amoxicillin uh, for an, uh, what they thought was a sore throat, and it ends up being a reaction to that, and they have mono. But I have a fever, I have a sore throat, I have this rash, I just don't feel good. At that point, it is imperative for you to at least think about the acute retroviral syndrome, which then leads you to the fact they've just become infected with HIV. And once you have an HIV-positive test, as I mentioned earlier, treatment starts now. You don't wait, because they're going to recover from this, and they'll be fine. But you don't wait. You don't wait during that long incubation period in some patients until the retrovirus starts multiplying. You treat immediately. And if you don't treat, that's fine. Infectious disease folks will be happy to treat this disorder. And I think they should, because the treatment is very complicated now. And as you'll see in just a few slides, the list of medicines and how to use them is very complicated. But remember this presentation. Fever, lymphadenopathy, pharyngitis, rash. Viral, yes. Could be HIV viral. And then there are other manifestations that can go along with this. Okay. Mouth. I want you to remember the mouth is an important place for pathology that helps define HIV AIDS. So that includes candida, thrush. Up to 20% of patients who are HIV infected will experience at least one, sometimes many episodes of oral candidiasis. Herpes simplex virus that looks bad. Yes, it's a cold sore, but it's a cold sore from hell. I'll show you pictures of this. Hairy leukoplakia on the sides of the tongue, usually totally asymptomatic, but white exophytic material. Oral warts. If you see a lot of warts on the tongue or on the lips, think about HIV. And remember, those folks may be otherwise all fine and have never been diagnosed. Bad periodontitis, aphthous ulcers for reasons we don't understand at all. Most people who have had aphthous ulcers have had a long history. They had it since they were teenagers or young adults or even sometimes children. Brand new onset of really bad aphthous ulceration should make you think HIV. And then Kaposi sarcoma in the mouth and elsewhere, which we don't see very much anymore. But there are examples of thrush. You can see florid example, medium bad, and then just a few of those little cotton ball looking white things on the palate. All of that is thrush. Thrush in your patient who's not a diabetic and not on immunosuppressives for cancer or, or collagen vascular disease or some other reason is HIV till you prove it's not. HSV1, oral labial or even within the mouth. HSV that really looks like horrible. Think about HIV as an underlying reason for that. Hairy leukoplakia, oral hairy leukoplakia, these asymptomatic whitish plaques 
You can't scrape it off like you can candida. That just comes off, and I use a tongue depressor as what to scrape with, and if it doesn't come off easily, it's probably not candida. And then you should think about this, which is Epstein-Barr related, and it can be treated with antivirals. The important thing to recognize is that this is a manifestation <clears throat> of HIV infection. Warts, warts on the tongue, warts on the lip. Think about HIV infection. And then here are examples of periodontitis, aphthous ulcers, they're pretty bad, but they don't always have to be. And then that one on the upper gingival surface, kind of a deep purple nodule, which was oral Kaposi sarcoma. So these are all oral manifestations of HIV infection, and you should always keep that in mind. Itching, just itching. 45% of HIV-positive patients experience significant itching during the course of their disease. And some of them, usually later in the disease, they've already been diagnosed later in the disease, they may not have any lesions at all. It's just paritis. But they may also have two entities, which I personally think are the same thing, eosinic folliculitis, which usually occurs on the head and neck area, or pruritic papular eruption of HIV, which tends to occur below the collarbones, particularly on the trunk and on the arms and hands. Itching, itching with lesions, itching without lesions, may be a manifestation of HIV infection. All sorts of bizarre things have been used to treat this. Unrelated things, itraconazole, doxycycline, UVB. So we don't really know what causes this, but it may be a manifestation. So look at this gentleman. He's got lots and lots of these pruritic nodules which had a little tiny pustule right in the center. So you always have to think about itching. If you know someone's HIV positive, you have to think about scabies and demodex. And if you were scraping that little pustule and you saw that, it would be demodectic infection. And demodectic infection can be a sign of HIV infection. And that's how he presented with this. Eosinophilic folliculitis, usually in its purest form, doesn't have those pustules. It more looks like this, a bunch of nodules that are all itchy. And that's how she presented. And that's how she was diagnosed with HIV infection. What else should that suggest? That should suggest florid nodular secondary syphilis. It might suggest sarcoid. So it can look like a lot of things. Itchy facial, particularly eruptions, should make you think about HIV and ask appropriate questions about risk factors. And this is the pruritic papular eruption which occurs lower than the face and neck, somewhere on the trunk or on the arms. It's not very specific. A lot of it looks like parigo. They've just been scratching and itching, and that's the case. They're scratching and itch. But again, any nondescript widespread pruritic eruption should make you think of HIV infection. A few other pearls. Primary and secondary syphilis. If the person still has the chancre of primary syphilis and is starting to get a rash, whether it's on the genitalia, on the palms and soles, or anywhere else for that matter, if they're getting the rash of secondary syphilis and still have a chancre on the genitalia, it's almost always an indication that they're HIV positive. Herpes, 
in HIV. It's negatively synergistic. Each one makes the other one worse. And so if you see odd HSV, like these exophytic vegetative plaques on the genitalia, that type of hypertrophic genital HSV is almost exclusively seen in HIV-positive individuals. The other place would be cancer patients with immunosuppressive drugs, cancer chemotherapeutic agents being administered. But in the US, this is most, most common in those who are HIV positive. So you look at that, and I would think, look at the gentleman. He was actually referred to me by urology who had done a biopsy to rule out squamous cell carcinoma. Perfectly legitimate, except when we got the slides, it was loaded with, with multinucleated giant cells and intranuclear inclusions. And I mean, it was clearly HSV. That vegetative type of HSV should make you think HIV. That's how his diagnosis was made. Or it can be the other way around. So exophytic as well as ulcerative, persistent genital ulcerations due to HSV2. These are teeming with type 2 herpes virus. And they just don't heal because many of them are resistant to acyclovir and all of its analogs. So persisting ulcerations in the genital area or exophytic nodules in the genital area. HIV affects HSV. And then herpes zoster, severe and disseminated in a young individual, should make you think of HIV. So this is a 19-year-old lady with very severe disseminated zoster. That's how her HIV was diagnosed. As both of these patients were diagnosed with HIV because of their very severe herpes zoster. And of course, we all know molluscum, right? Very severe molluscum in an adult, unless it's limited to the genital area, which is a common method of transmission in sexually active, otherwise healthy individuals. If you start seeing molluscum on the face, on the neck, on the chest, in an adult who does not have eczema, persisting from childhood, always think about HIV. And then the next slide I hesitate to show. It's a little shocking. But those are all molluscum. So very, very large masses of molluscum, particularly on the face in children, should make you think about HIV. And while in the United States it's not quite like in Africa, we do see children who acquire HIV infection. Crusted scabies, not just regular scabies, but crusted scabies or Norwegian scabies. We don't use that term anymore because we like the Norwegians. But crusted scabies should be an indication that you need to think about if the patient is not already diagnosed that they might be HIV infected. And the biggest problem with this, other than the fact that they're teeming with mites, highly contagious and incredibly itchy, is all those fissures that appear in crusted scabies. Those fissures are like wide open invitations to bacteria. And what these patients are at risk for is bacterial sepsis. And they die from that. So if you see crusted scabies and you don't have a history of immunosuppression, cancer, something, some reason for it, think HIV positivity. And by the way, the best way to treat this, I put up here, there are now three papers that all 
point out that this is probably the most appropriate way to treat crusted scabies is giving oral ivermectin, 200 micrograms per kilogram. You give it on days one and two of the first week. You give it on days one and two, or totally it would be eight and nine, of the second week. And then you give it on day one of the third week, or day 15. So it's five doses of ivermectin. Day one and two, next week, day one and two, Monday, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, Monday, five doses, along with topical permethrin, although it appears the topical permethrin is not entirely necessary, but it's usually recommended. But it's five doses of ivermectin. That's how you treat crusted scabies, regardless of HIV positivity or some other reason for it to be there. And then just a few words about treatment. The goal of treatment is really to suppress HIV replication significantly enough so that mutations that lead to resistance don't occur, as well as preventing HIV transmission, improving the patient's quality of life, and yes, prolonging disease-free survival. And you can see this graph over years. This is sort of a world view. And as people, the bars get higher, that's more people having access to antiretroviral therapy the death rate falls. So clearly, that's the goal of therapy. What predicts success? Primarily adherence to treatment regimen. That's the major thing. We have all these drugs. I just want to point out the one in blue is the only one up there that's not an antiretroviral direct drug. It doesn't affect the virus in any way. It's a booster. It's given in combination with these drugs and it impairs hepatic metabolism of the direct antiretroviral drugs. That's primarily how it works. It may also enhance oral absorption of the medications as well. But that one in blue that I showed at first is the only one up there that's not really an antiretroviral drug. Why do treatments fail? It said that over a third fail within six years of initiation. The number one, two, three, four, and five reason is lack of adherence. Because we now have multiple combination drugs, instead of taking two handfuls of pills, it's become much easier. So treatment is not as difficult as it once was, and yet some patients still think it means I'm going to have to take 100 pills a day, and I just don't want to fool with it. I feel fine. That's a really foolish attitude. And if you ever hear anything like that, from a patient that you're taking care of, you should really try and sway them the other way. Who uses more drugs than anybody else? South Africa, because that's epicenter of the African explosion of HIV. Quick comment on lipodystrophy. There's lipoatrophy wasting, particularly on the face of the subcutaneous fat that occurs in combination with one set, in particular a couple of drugs. And then there's lipodystrophy, which is accumulation of visceral fat that primarily is associated with protease inhibitors. So you have lipoatrophy and you have lipodystrophy. Lipoatrophy can be helped. People who look like this, it's a stigma. And those who are familiar with it know that the person who has this kind of lipoatrophy is taking antiretroviral medications. So it's a stigma of HIV infection. And that can be helped with fillers a lot, especially with some of the more longer-lasting fillers. 
So I love this quote, and I just like to read it. The long-term strategic anti-HIV therapy is similar to a chess game against a truly superior opponent in which the sole objective consists of avoiding checkmate and remaining on the board after 20 years. We're not curing the disease yet. We're controlling the disease. If someone engages in regular, routine, appropriate care, they can live a very, very long time. We probably are close, but not quite to the point of curing the disease. And a pound of prevention is worth two tons of cure or treatment, right? So remember that pre-exposure prophylaxis, even on demand. And here's the last slide. I had to leave you with some good news. So it turns out that at least in South Africa and Botswana, the virus itself, HIV-1, is actually mutating in a positive way. It's attenuating. So where it used to take 10 years to go from HIV infection to full-blown AIDS, it's now taking 12 and a half or more years. And the virus itself replicates and mutates less often. So that's a positive mutation in terms of how we would view the disease. This has not yet been demonstrated in the US or in Europe or Canada or South America, but I think it's only a matter of time. And as the virus mutates for the positive, that will make our job easier. You know, basically, this is an old poster from World War II, Stamp Out VD. You know, basically what I wanted to point out to you is that the treatment of HIV should be started early, that there are many cutaneous and intraoral manifestations of HIV that we should be aware of, most notably psoriasis in someone with acute onset with it being severe and no family history. Thrush's HIV totes proven that it's not HIV. And anything you can do as a contributing member of the entire healthcare team taking care of an HIV-positive patient will be greatly appreciated. Your encouragement of ongoing therapy, or if someone's of demographic risk and hasn't yet been infected, of doing pre-exposure prophylaxis is really doing that patient and society a great favor. So I hope that's helped bring you up to date a little bit on HIV, and I certainly appreciate your very, very kind attention as I rattled on for an hour or so on this. Thank you very much. The overall performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? I think that should also read, does it reinforce good practices you're already doing, which I hope it does. So I'll answer a few questions for just a few minutes. I want everyone to have time to go change and get ready for boat if you want to. Are those breast, are those breast milk banks, companies selling breast milk test? Yes, absolutely. Breast milk tested, blood banks are testing blood. Many of us may not prescribe it. I agree with you, we need to know about it. 
I see gay men who are in prophylaxis all the time. We should know about these drugs. Absolutely. You encourage someone who's not on prophylactic medication to start that kind of treatment. Do any of the common drugs we prescribe in dermatology interact with the HIV protocols or prophylactic? No. Most of our drugs, even systemic drugs, do not have a major effect in any, in any negative way with the HIV regimens. So there's really no major drug-drug interactions in that, in that uh, event. Considering a biologic, do you take their sexual behavior into account? Are they doing risky behavior? Well, I don't routinely ask that with a biologic drug because, as I said, at least the TNF-alpha drugs appear to be quite safe. We have very little data on IL-1223 or IL-23 as a pure drug or IL-17s. We just don't know. But TNF-alpha, which is almost always my first shot because we know of the ancillary benefits improving glucose control, improving other portions of metabolic syndrome, uh, TNF-alphas appear to be very safe in HIV-infected, so I don't usually ask. Now, with that said, specifically, with that said, there are three things I've added to my intake sheet. Patients are free not to answer, and many of them do not, but it includes travel history, exposure to animals, and sexual orientation because I need to know that sometimes. A lot, I need to know it. So I have that as part of my intake sheet, and so sometimes I already know if someone's of demographic risk, and if they tell me they're gay, then I'll ask them, you know, do you practice safe sex? Are you HIV positive? Have you ever been tested? You know, two or three questions. I don't want to make a big deal out of it because that may not be why they're there. But it's important as a provider, period. I mean, just thinking about the general health of your patient. For biologics, though, in general, no. Unless they fit that, I have it, I didn't have it two weeks ago, and now I'm covered with psoriasis, and nobody in my family has it. Then I'll ask specifically. Um, considering uh, I have some extremely recalcitrant cases of Veruca vulgaris and HIV patients but they're on HIV therapy. Any advice? Destructive techniques, sidofavir, it has to be compounded, one to two percent in, in um, petrolatum, works well in patients who are immunocompromised or immunosuppressed, so that would include HIV. And then physical modalities like laser and other physical destructive modalities and combination therapy. Do you anticipate preventable, injectable, that's coming out soon will be a standard recommended? Yes. Well, not as a vaccine. This is a, a, a prophylactic injection that people who are at demographic risk will receive every two months. It'll be a choice. It won't be required. But I think it'll be highly recommended in anyone who's at risk. And if I were at risk, six shots a year to give me maybe 90-plus percent protection, 100% in the first small study, I would do it in a heartbeat, right? Uh, appropriate to biopsy rash if you suspect HIV? Yes, mostly to rule out anything else. A good dermatopathologist can recognize it, not terribly specific, but it rules out everything else that it might be. So thank you for staying. See you on the boat. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.